From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that axolotl questions. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Salamander Superhero. Hey, Chad. Axolotl just rolls right off your tongue, doesn't it? I'm going to be honest with you, Chad. I'm coming in completely blind to this episode. You gave me a little <laughs> bit of background information to read and I haven't done it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's all going to be new and interesting and a surprise, I suppose. Why do we want to talk about axolotls? Well, I could give you a reason that's related to a class that I'm teaching right now and how there are some interesting things that happen in axolotl that characterize some of these interesting biological phenomena. But the actual answer is that you might remember a few weeks ago, we did an episode on dinosaurs and how birds are dinosaurs sure, that didn't yeah. go extinct and why that might have been. And that was in response to a question from one of my daughters. Mm -hmm. And so I played that episode for my two older daughters. And my other daughter then was like, well, I have a question too. So she wanted to know more about this animal called axolotl. Um, <laughs> and so, so here we are. Wow. So uh, how, wait, how old is she? This was from the 11 year old. She's 11 years old. And I, I've never even heard of this thing. So I'm being shown up by an 11 year old. Well, the subset of things that my daughters know a whole lot about is... <laughs> somewhat skewed by their upbringing i have to admit ah uh, yeah so well i'm excited about our next topic which will be formula or something i'm, I'm sure <laughs> yeah right so anyway this um axolotl is a really interesting animal it turns out that it is an important model organism for a bunch of different interesting biological research endeavors that i'll talk about a little bit and it also has a really interesting evolutionary history and ecology and it's woven into some indigenous cultures of central america and it's an animal of really serious conservation concerns. So all around, there are a whole bunch of different interesting things about the animal that I think will make it hopefully an interesting thing to talk about for a bit. All so. right. If you wanted to see axolotl in the wild, where might you go? Great question. And it turns out that they are restricted to two very small lakes on the outskirts of Mexico City. And hmm. that's it. And Mexico City was the seat of the Aztec empire prior to European colonization. Mm -hmm. And so at that site, there was this really large wetland, sort of high elevation wetland down in the Mexico Valley, shallow, very large lakes surrounded by really dry habitat around that. And there were these amphibians that lived there. And there was this big island kind of in the middle of the lake, which is where the Aztec had built a lot of their city and some of the outlying areas were also inhabited by people, but it was this really massive wetland area. And then they were very well aware of the axolotl. They figured pretty prominently in their cultural practices and religious beliefs. But then Europeans showed up in the 1500s or so and ultimately led to the extinction of the Aztec culture. And by the mid 1800s, the European and mixed indigenous European descendants that were still living in the area decided to drain those wetlands and start converting them into either more agricultural 
agricultural types of production or increasing urbanization of Mexico City. And so what had been a massive lake wetland system got smaller and smaller and smaller until what's left today is these two really small little isolated lakes Hmm. on the outskirts of Mexico City. And the salamanders that lived there originally were in the probably hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of individuals in the whole population, very well adapted to this massive marshy wetland habitat. But now there might be less than a thousand axolotls left in the wild. And Hmm. so you ask where you would go to see these in the wild. So that's the where. And I suppose it's kind of... (laughs) Would you actually be lucky enough to lay your eyes on one if you were in the right place because they're just so darn rare? But as luck would have it, some of the European natural historians that were traveling through Central and South America at the time also came across axolotl and found them to be very interested and stuck them in their collection and shipped them back to Europe for further investigation by various experts. And so by the early 1800s, they had made their way as pickled specimens in alcohol back to some of the scientists in Europe. And so one of those was this guy named Cuvier, Georges Cuvier. He's famous as the main proponent of this idea of extinction prior to him kind of codifying this idea that In the geological past, in Earth's history, there were animals that existed that are no longer around. Mm -hmm. You know, to our modern ears, that seems very obvious, but... Just did an episode about dinosaurs. I mean, come on. Right, exactly. (laughs) They must not be listeners. At the time, that was a very revolutionary and almost subversive idea. So anyway, that's this Cuvier guy. That's what he's most well known for. And so he received these very weird salamanders... And I guess we haven't even talked about the thing that makes them weird. So they're amphibians. And what does a physicist know about amphibians sort of in general terms of their life cycle? Well, I... I think you start out as a tadpole, if you're a frog at least, Uh which has gills and can swim around. And then there's a transformation that they turn into air breathing, but they still have to stay wet. So I often think of them, and maybe I don't know if this is right or justified at all, but I, I think of it as most things started in water. And then things started trying to make their way out. And I think of amphibians as sort of the step to get to, say, reptiles and other things that are permanently out of the water. Yeah, that that's a good summary, both of their life cycle, as well as kind of where they are in the evolutionary history of vertebrates. You're absolutely right. There's this transition from aquatic ancestors that were more like fish mm-hmm. to terrestrial vertebrates that are more like reptiles and mammals. And the really interesting thing, as you say about amphibians, is they're kind of like halfway between, right? That's what their name basically means. Amphi means something having to do with both. Mm-hmm. And so they've got that aquatic juvenile phase where they, as you said, breathe with gills. That's an important part of the story here. And then the juveniles go through a metamorphosis into adulthood where their gills cease functioning and a lung starts to serve as their respiratory organ. And then, as you say, many of them remain near moist habitats, although some of them can withstand drier habitats, but they're pretty tied to water, certainly for the purposes of reproduction. They have to lay their eggs in an aquatic environment. Almost all. So back to the story of what Cuvier was finding, and this was well known at the time that there's the tadpole phase that has gills, and then there's the adult phase that has a lung. 
And here is this thing that has four legs and a sort of flat, broad tail like a tadpole, and it still has gills, and it, it remains submerged in water doing gas exchange in the gills. And hmm. so Cuvier thought, oh, this is obviously a late stage tadpole of an as yet unknown salamander species. Okay. So do axolotls ever use lungs or they just never do that? That's a great question. That's the next thing we'll talk about here. So that was in the early 1800s. And if we fast forward a few decades into the middle 1800s, by then people were starting to report that these salamanders would actually even though they still looked like juveniles, they were actually reproductively competent. That was my uh, nickname in high school, by the way. Reproductively competent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In terms of animal development, we consider the juvenile phase to be all of those different developmental stages prior to the individual being able to reproduce. And then once the thing has reproductive organs and gonads producing viable egg and sperm, mm -hmm. that's when we call the thing an adult. What was very surprising is that these people were keeping live individuals of axolotl together in a tank, and they still looked like juveniles because they had gills, but they would come back and holy cow, these things have laid eggs that have hatched out into tadpoles. And that was sort of gobsmacking because they still retained these juvenile characteristics. Hmm. And so here we have this animal that still looks like a juvenile, but it's reproductively competent. So that was thing number one. But they do eventually throw off the gills and... No. Oh, okay. Many of them do not. And so the part of the story that gets a little confusing is that some of them grew to old age and never ever developed lungs. Hmm. They always remained in that juvenile morphology and perhaps they went through multiple rounds of reproduction throughout their lifetime. You know, they lived for several years and then died of old age hmm. still with their gills. But a few of them also went ahead and lost their gills and developed into something that looked like what we would call a tiger salamander. Hmm. They're sort of like a blackish skin with kind of a mottled, yellowy, light tan sort of spotty pattern on them. And then they've got their little bulgy eyes on top of their head with little eyelids and a little bit more of a neck. And instead of having these fringy gills around their neck, now they've got a functioning lung. Hmm. And they hang out outside of the water and breathe air. Hmm. And so people were like, what the heck is going on? Except for they probably said it in French. Sacre bleu. <laughs> Sacre bleu. <laughs> <laughs> and so then the next question became, what is causing some of these to metamorphose and others of them to retain the juvenile characteristics? And so a series of, you know, different kinds of experiments were tried. And this researcher kept them in aquaria that were on a little bit of a slant. And so there was a little bit of water, but it was kind of pooled at one end of the aquarium. Mm, and, right, it, sure. and it sort of like simulated the edge of a pond. Mm -hmm. And what she did is she slowly reduced the water level more and more and more. And it kind of like forced them up out of the water into this moist mossy substrate that she had on the dry part of the aquarium and slowly through time that change in their environment seemed to initiate this 
metamorphic response. And so she was able to force them to undergo metamorphosis. So it was known that it could happen. Ah, so that means that there are triggers in nature that cause that then? Yeah, there's something about declining water levels that their central nervous system can recognize. Mm. And that kicks off a cascade of hormone releases that can prompt them to undergo metamorphosis. It was also known at the time, and I'm not quite sure how this was first discovered, but it was known at the time that if you feed tadpoles of things like frogs and other kinds of salamanders, if you feed them thyroid gland from a mammal, which I suppose if you're like butchering an ox or something like that, and you know, you've got the big thyroid gland around the throat, and it's probably not a real choice piece of meat for human consumption. And so you can like chuck it in a pond or something like this. And what that would do is it would speed up the metamorphosis of the tadpoles. Hmm. And so it was known that there was something about thyroid that would speed up that metamorphic transition. And so in the early 1900s, some researchers sort of put one and one together and tried giving some of these um, adult but neotenic adult axolotls mammalian thyroid. Uh -huh. And when they did so pretty quickly and they would undergo metamorphosis into the adult. Hmm. And so there's something about thyroid that prompts them to undergo metamorphosis. And so that's been known about for about a hundred years. Hmm. So anyway, what that shows is that the genes for undergoing metamorphosis and producing the full adult morphology are still perfectly functional. It's just that whatever the cue is, that's not functional. Hmm. And so what these early researchers were demonstrating is that there is something having to do with the cascade of events going from hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain, which produces hormones mm -hmm. that stimulate a lot of different other organs in the body, one of which is the pituitary, which is a tiny little element of the brain kind of hanging down off of the brain. That itself is an endocrine organ, which produces more hormones, one of which stimulates the thyroid located in our neck. And then the thyroid is then stimulated to produce still other hormones. And it's those hormones from the thyroid that actually have their local effects on different cells in the body to turn on or off different sets of genes during development. Hmm. And if you think about like how development just generally, it's kind of interesting that every single cell in the body of a developing animal and an adult animal has the complete genome, right? And so right. it's not that cells that are making a liver only have the liver making genes and then cells that are making an arm only have the arm making genes, right? They, both of those cells making those two very different features have all the genes for making everything. Oh, I see. So yeah. So every cell in my body has my entire DNA in it. Exactly. I, but you're so, saying that I can't take out my liver and, and grow an arm off of my liver, that there's something else going on there. Yeah. And so the process of development then is a process of certain genes in specific locations getting turned on and equally as importantly, certain other genes in specific locations getting turned off. And so you only want the liver making genes to be turned on where our liver is starting to develop and you don't want pancreas genes to be turned on there. Right. Yeah. And so it turns out that the hormones produced by the thyroid have a really important regulatory role on the genes that need to be turned on and off for this last 
morphological stage of metamorphosis to be realized in these amphibians. Hmm. And so if there is no hormonal signal from the thyroid, then the animal doesn't go through those final morphological changes, at least with respect to body form and respiratory system. However, the genes controlling gonadal development have gone ahead and remained active. And so their gonads go ahead and develop into the adult form. Hmm. So they're precocious in that way. So So, does the thyroid do something similar in our bodies then? I don't actually know what the thyroid does. Yeah. So in our bodies, we have a hypothalamus, which is in the brain, which produces lots of different kinds of hormones that go out and affect various other organs in the body. We have a pituitary, which is one of those target organs that itself can be stimulated to produce a suite of different hormones. And one of the organs that those can affect is the thyroid. And yeah, the thyroid is definitely involved in our development as well as our continued homeostasis and and regulation as adults. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an important organ. So anyway, that part of the story tells us that in axolotls, their thyroid is not kicking out the appropriate hormones usually, and you can simulate the effect of a functioning thyroid by feeding it thyroid. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever the hormones are. Yeah. So is the thyroid just kicking out one hormone or is it kicking out? You said it was a whole suite of things. Uh, the ones I'm familiar with are called T3 and T4. So thyroid hormone three and thyroid hormone four. Yeah. Those are the best too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which, which implies to me that there might be other numbered ones. <laughs> <laughs> At least two more. I mean, uh, perhaps. <laughs> so yeah. And, and subsequently, we found other instances where sort of the delay in development of certain body parts seems to be part of how different kinds of body plans might have arisen evolutionarily. Hmm. Another really amazing thing about axolotl, this is sort of a gear shift here, is their ability to regenerate lost limbs or lost body organs. Ah. And this is something that even the Aztecs knew about, that if you cut off a limb, like a leg, for example, or even a part of the brain or even like a part of the spine or parts of internal organs, it will reform what it has lost. Hmm. And so this is sort of like related to our salamander superheroes, you know, like Wolverine. Yeah. Wolverine. And Deadpool. And Deadpool. And Dr. Connor in the Spider-Man universe, which is also Marvel. So it's all in the same universe. But okay, because Dr. Connor was missing an arm and then he did Uh, all this research on how he could have mammals grow arms like crocodiles can, apparently. Although I don't know that crocodiles can, but that's the idea is that a lizard could or something like that. Uh Anyway. So he, as a good scientist would, tested on himself. And so, yes, he grows his arm back and then he turns into a giant lizard and terrorizes the city of New York. So anyway, this Wolverine style ability to heal, it's not as fast as that, but it's actually real. Hmm. (laughs) And so what happens is pretty quickly, the wound sort of covers over with some of the epidermis. And just inside of that over the injury, the cells underlying that tissue undergo what's called de-differentiation. Wait, what's differentiation? Presumably that's the opposite of de-differentiation. Yeah. Well, there is, if it's possible for something to have two opposites, this might be one of those cases. And so when we speak of a cell as being differentiated, what we mean is that the 
cell type that it is has become very, very narrow and focused. So now it is a very specific kind of cell doing a very specific kind of thing. And the process of development, embryonic development, juvenile development to adulthood in an animal is a process in which cells become increasingly narrow in the kinds of jobs that they do. That's called differentiation. And so if you kind of start way at the beginning of a zygote, immediately Mm -hmm. after egg meets sperm and fertilization happens, we have a single cell that we call a zygote. And then that thing starts dividing and dividing and dividing until we get to a few couple dozen cells perhaps. Stem cells. Well, yeah. So that's what we're heading towards, right? Okay. And at that really early stage, at least in the kind of animals that we're talking about here, any one of those cells can still go on to be or give rise to any of the cells in the adult, right? Okay. They have not yet differentiated. But then if you go a little bit further, we start to get differentiation where cells on the outside of this developing embryo are going to grow up to be one thing. Cells on the inside are going to grow up to be something else. Cells kind of between those two layers are going to grow up to be still other kinds of things. Hmm. And in doing so in that initial phase of differentiation, they start to lose the ability to be other things. Hmm. And then you keep playing the tape and you get further, further along in differentiation and the the cell fates start to become increasingly narrow and narrow and narrow. And so that's a process of going from undifferentiated cells Mm -hmm. to differentiated cells at the end. And the holy grail of things like slowing down aging, things like growing new organs and tissues and spinal repair and central nervous system repair, all these kinds of things is figuring out a way to roll back the clock on these differentiated cells. Because for whatever reason, it seems like once the cells become differentiated, they can't go back, hmm. except in these axolotl. And is it only axolotl? I mean, I've heard of this happening before. So I guess I should specify there are a few other animals that can regenerate lost limbs and lost organs and things like that. And it seems to be fairly similar to this, what I'll describe here for the axolotl. And follow-up question, how extreme can you be? Is it a matter of, oh, it's a tail or, or just a toe or something like that? Or can you gut out a liver or just chop off all but the head and then have it all grow back? So you cannot cut off the head. The head can't grow back its body. Okay. So it, it's not that quite that extreme, but you can cut out a portion of the brain and that will grow back. Or you can cut out like a portion of the spine and it will grow back. Or you can cut out a portion of the heart or a portion of the liver. And so it seems to be the case that as long as you have a portion of the original organ there, then you've got the raw material to grow back the rest. Hmm. And so you can do something like cut off the entire arm and the cells underneath the wound undergo this de-differentiation. And so let's think about like in a limb, what do we have? Well, we've got epidermal cells that make up the skin. We've got muscle cells that make up the muscles in the arm. We've got bone and cartilage. We've got nerves and maybe some vasculature. That's kind of like most of the different kinds of organs that we'd find in an arm or a leg. And so these different cell types will actually de-differentiate into essentially a stem cell, use the term stem cell a little bit ago, a stem cell for those tissue types. And so Hmm. the muscles at the site of the wound will de-differentiate from a arm muscle cell to like a muscle stem cell. Hmm. And the bone cells will de-differentiate from part of a finished bone to a precursor 
bone stem cell. And so you get this little mass of all of these de-differentiated cells of all of the different kinds of tissue types that are going to be necessary to regrow the limb. And it forms this sort of like cone-shaped little nubbin at the tip of the amputated limb. And then those de-differentiated stem cells start to grow back the full version hmm. of the adult limb. Including- so it, it doesn't go back to square one. Like if you were to remove all the muscles, then it would not be able to grow muscle back. Yeah. So for example, the bone precursor cells or the differentiated bone stem cells Mm -hmm. cannot be used to like regrow muscle or they can't be used to regrow liver or things like that. Right. So you can roll back the clock to what seems to be the major tissue type that they give rise to, which is still pretty significant, right? Because you can go from that point where the site of the injury happens. And now all of these little cells are receiving signals telling them to turn on their limb building genes, for example. And Mm -hmm. so out grows a limb in the same way that it would have happened while the thing was developing as an embryo. Okay. So that makes sense why Wolverine doesn't have a separate skeleton. Like they removed all of his bones and replaced it all with adamantium. And so that's why Uh he doesn't grow a separate skeleton, you know, next to that shell. Yeah. I didn't know that Marvel did that much research on this stuff, but... Yeah, so de-differentiated muscle stem cells give rise to new muscle, de-differentiated neurons give rise to new nerves in the growing limb and and so on and so forth. And you get the full thing back, which is Hmm. if you think about the applications to humans, imagine a person who suffers a serious injury and where they lose a limb or have to have, you know, a significant chunk of an organ removed for maybe they've got like a cancerous liver or something like that. And a large portion of the liver needs to be removed right now. The options that a person in that situation has to them are, are basically hopefully live with just a portion of a liver or in the, in the case of a person who has a limb loss to either have a prosthetic or go without entirely. But if you could imagine with recent advances in CRISPR Cas9 technology, which is a way of introducing genes from one kind of organism into another kind of organism Mm -hmm. where they can actually have the effect in that new organism. You could imagine like a bandage that you would put over a wound where a person has like lost an arm or something. And that bandage would have embedded in it the relevant genetic instructions for de-differentiating all of the relevant tissue types and then fostering the rebuilding of that limb, Hmm. uh, you know, at the site of the injury. And so when we finally get to that point, our understanding of how Axolotl do this is definitely going to be part of our understanding that led to that. Yeah. Related to this, Axolotl don't scar, which is kind of interesting. So if you cut their epidermis, their epidermal cells pretty quickly migrate up and over the wound. Hmm. And then underneath the healing wound, they rebuild their collagen fibers, which gives skin sort of its elasticity and its strength. And the way they rebuild them is exactly in line with the rest of the collagen that underlies the rest of the skin. And so it Hmm. doesn't make this sort of uh, noticeable difference in texture and appearance scar. 
Whereas like in humans, if we have like a, a large cut or something, especially something that needs stitches, right? The ends are held together. And then underneath that, the collagen fibers are reformed, but they kind of maintain a more linear bundle sort of conformation rather than sort of being woven together. And then that's what gives scars often a, a kind of different texture and appearance. Hmm. And so figuring out how that works might help with understanding how wounds heal. Hmm. Another really interesting thing about axolotl is that it's extremely rare for them to get cancer, both spontaneous tumors as well as having high resistance to carcinogens. Hmm. And if you think about it, that's somewhat surprising because what's going on at the site of a wound is a whole lot of really rapid proliferation of cells and yeah. then migration of those cells to new locations. That sounds that, like cancer. That sounds like cancer. Exactly. And so understanding how they're able to really closely regulate those two processes of rapid cell proliferation and migration without it becoming cancerous can perhaps lead to some really interesting insights into how we might be able to better control cancerous tumors. Hmm. And then I guess the final thing that is interesting in kind of an evolutionary context is that understanding how it is that genes get turned on and off during development and how that can lead to drastically different body plans mm -hmm. helps us understand a lot about the evolution of different kinds of animal body plans and why it is that genes in one animal can be transplanted into a completely different animal and still have the appropriate effect. What do you mean by that? Well, so for example, there are mutants in fruit flies called eyeless. And this is a strain of fruit flies that produces just tiny, tiny little or, or even their completely absent eyes, right? And then there's a similar strain in mice that are eyeless. They just produce these tiny little non-functional eyes. Hmm. And what you can do is you can take a functional eye-making gene from fruit flies and insert it into an eyeless mouse embryo. And that mouse will grow up to have completely functional mouse eyes. Huh. You can do the reciprocal. You can take a functional gene for building mouse eyes and insert it into a fruit fly embryo, an eyeless fruit fly embryo. And that genetically eyeless fruit fly embryo will grow up to be an adult fly that has perfectly functional fruit fly eyes. Hmm. And so the fact that the genes for making functional eyes between fruit flies and mice are basically the same tells you how how there's just a bunch of common tools that build certain features among lots of different, very distinct animals. Hmm. Right. It, because so, so mouse eyes would be similar to ours, except maybe bulgier, but a, a fruit fly eye has like all these different segment is segmented or something, right? Sure. Yeah. They're very different eyes. And yet having just this one command that says build an eye, let's them figure that out that that command is it must be simple enough that it's just, it's not complicated enough to be like, first make this bulge and then make this happen or anything like that. So it's one of these genes that's sort of like somewhere in the middle of a cascade of a whole bunch of other genes. And so basically it's a gene whose product basically says, build I here. And that turns on a whole suite of other downstream genes that build the very specifics of like a mouse eye or hmm. build the specific features of a fruit fly eye. But the basic instruction of build an eye is the same. 
And then upstream from that are still other master regulator genes who are responsible for turning on and off these other downstream genes. Hmm. And so it's the turning on and off of the genes that build the basic features that can result in animals with very, very different body plans. Hmm. And an analogy that I came up with is cooking with an egg, right? And so you can imagine all the different kinds of recipes that include an egg. And there's over a hundred. Yeah, well, it's like depending on when you add the egg, it's going to have a different effect on what happens in the recipe, how it's treated during the cooking process, Mm -hmm. what other kinds of ingredients you add to the egg during the process make a huge difference in what that egg ends up helping build, right? All the way from things like a meringue to a custard to omelets or even a birthday cake or ice cream, right? These are all very different things Mm -hmm. that include this basic egg ingredient. But what's different is the timing of its use, the way in which it was used, and the other ingredients that you mixed with it. Hmm. And so my point here is that one thing that axolotl helped us understand is that genes can act in a very similar way that you might have basic genes that do a certain thing make a certain protein that has a certain function but if you express that at a different time Mm -hmm. or in a different kind of environment or with a suite of a different kind of other genes that are also being expressed then the end result of the morphological feature or the body plan or even the behavior of the organism can be drastically different Hmm. from a sort of common set of ingredients interesting and so the axolotl is is one of the organisms that really helped us understand that kind of key insight into how it is that animals develop. It's not that frogs have nothing but frog genes that can only ever build a frog and mice only have mouse genes that can only ever build a mouse and so on and so forth for every single animal, right? Basically, all animals have a bunch of very similar or related genes that can actually work in each other's bodies, Hmm. as evidenced by that fly-mouse eyeless reciprocal transplant experiment. And so it was thanks to axolotl that we kind of started to pick up on that idea that at least for the timing of genetic expression makes a huge difference from this thing that has gills and has to live in water to this thing that has lungs and lives on land. Hmm. That's a big difference. Yeah. So anyway, I hope my older daughter is satisfied with what we got up to here. (laughs) Yeah. She's going to make some joke about Guns and Rosetal and their lead singer being Axolotl. But (laughs) Axolotl Rose. (laughs) Well, thanks, Chad. Sure. Very cool stuff. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Tiger Rodeo theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you'd like to ask a lot of questions of us, email us at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. 